0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, a podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is...
1: Henry Darger.
0: Who was Henry Darger? Well, he's arguably one of the most important artists of the 20th century with a body of work that's both Herculean in scale and scope. He was a veteran, a janitor, and completely unrecognized for the duration of his life. One, Vivian girls and Vivian boys. Most artists are loners. They keep to themselves. They're introverts. However, today's subject, Henry Joseph Darger Jr., takes that stereotype to an extreme, sometimes referred to as a shut-in, a hermit, or a recluse. Darger died alone, penniless, and bathed in anonymity. However, posthumously, his artistic works and writing would catapult him to superstardom. Darger was born April 12, 1892. His father, Henry Darger Sr., was a tailor little is known about his mother rosa Fullman. cook county records show that he was born at home a house located at 350 west 24th street in chicago illinois this is what that looks like today what does it look like
1: where henry darger was born i mean it it kind of looks like what it kind of looks like where he actually would have lived <laughs> you think he lived in in Inside of an underpass, like every everything that I and you know about this man, who we will talk about, and the audience will soon know, uh, this is this looks more like what his house was. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's it's not that far off. Basically, uh, I Google Google Maps the, the address, and the place that his house used to be in is now an uh, a, like a freeway overpass and uh, very rusty, and it's very Chicago-y.
1: It's just, a, it's just a grimy tunnel, and you can just imagine him sleeping in there and just painting all over the walls and the ceiling.
0: When he was roughly four years old, Henry Darger's mother died of rheumatic fever after giving birth to a daughter. Darger, whose father felt that he could not care for two children, gave her up for adoption. Henry Darger Jr. never knew that he had a sister. Additionally, a biographer of Darger's, John M. McGregor, discovered that Rosa Fullman had given birth to two additional children prior to Darger however their whereabouts were never uncovered
1: that's a really specific line in the sand like you know somebody somebody living living in abject poverty like certainly the idea of having children is you know a lot of people give a lot, a lot of people they get pregnant or whatever and then they give up their child for adoption because they don't think that they can Take care of the baby, uh, whether it's a financial thing or they're too young or whatever. Um, so like certainly like just ha- like having one child, I-, I understand someone being like, we can't do this. We have to we have to give up the baby. And like, you know, if you if you like find out you have twins and you're like, oh, we can't afford this. Or like you you're having you're having your fifth child or something like that. But that just seems like a really specific light in the sand of like having one child and then like a second one. And you're like, nope.
0: I mean, what that I feels draw like, the
1: line at one,
0: but that feels like to me is like, I'm down to take care of this boy, but girls, yeah, that's, mm, that's kind of, w- so.
1: that's kind of exactly what I was thinking is like, that sounds m- more like there was something more going on there that it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I can't take of a- care of a second child. Cause that's just like, so like, if you already have a kid, like having a second kid is more in terms of just like chasing them around and having another child to take to like chase after that part is hard, but it like you kind of already you have all the stuff already and i don't know it's just like that's just it seems so weird that he would just be like number two can't do it so yeah it it to me it seems more like he was just like i don't want a girl
0: yeah which is really heartbreaking yeah very very sad
1: but i mean i think i think that was kind of common i mean it's maybe still is but i think especially in the olden times there was like this you know like there was like this very specific idea of like I need like a boy to carry on my bloodline, and I'm going to name him after me, and he's going to continue the family. And I mean, then, literally,
0: like, he's named Henry Darger Jr.
1: Yeah, and then like they didn't really care about having girls. Like a lot of men didn't didn't care or have any interest in having girls. Fucking so sad. Yeah.
0: Henry Darger Sr. was a quiet man who suffered from disabilities. His poor health made it difficult for him to care for his young son. They lived together until around 1900 when Darger Jr. was approximately eight years old. His father was admitted to St. Augustine's Home for the Aged in order to care for his needs. Henry Darger, on the other hand, was a gifted child. He learned to read at a young age and started school at a third grade level despite only being the age of a first grader. After his father's hospitalization, he moved into Mission of Our Lady of Mercy, a Roman Catholic orphanage.
1: Get those finger paints out of my face. Give me that fucking goosebumps book right now, bitch. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking I'm gonna fucking just pound an Encyclopedia Brown book right now. Fuck get that alphabet book out of my face. I'm gonna read it. Animorphs. All of our references are just like 90s things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, they had anamorphs in eighteen hundred and
1: ninety nine. I was going to say, neither way you look at it, this is these are not timely references like this stuff didn't exist in the eighteen hundreds and it's not current modern day stuff. (laughs) It's like anachronistic no matter what. you. No, but see what you're not taking into account,
0: Andrew, is that everything that was popular in the nineteen nineties was also popular in the eighteen nineties. It just oh, yeah, had, it's, like, it's it all just cyclical, had, yeah. Yeah, it just had, like, weird mustaches and, like, funny hats.
1: It was the Animorphs, but, like, the kids would just morph into, like, a giant, like, handlebar mustache.
0: Yeah, yeah, the Animorphs, like, the cover was just, like, a printing press, a, sl- a printing press with a nose, a printing press with a
1: nose and eyes, and then a kid. They, d- they didn't morph into animals. They morphed into just, like, objects that were popular during that time. mustaches and printing presses uh my favorite animorph was
0: uh joey the dictaphone yeah Mm -hmm. also a big fan of um samantha the combustion engine
1: yeah the sad thing is is that um thomas edison you know he claimed to have written all those books That his name he's he's the author on all those original animorphs books but in reality, they were written by a series of different authors that were kind of like they all ghost wrote, and then he just kind of like had his name on it.
0: The first one, Nikola Tesla.
1: Yep, he wrote he wrote the he wrote the dictaphone adventure.
0: Yeah, and also the I believe it was the fourth book, the Secret of Alternating Current. Yeah, or was it Direct Current? No, he's Alternating Current, right?
1: Yeah, Nikola Tesla was a, was uh, was AC, and Thomas Edison was DC. <sighs> they uh, they murdered an elephant to prove that that book was... You could read it faster than the other books.
0: What a guy. What a guy. After his father's hospitalization, Darger moved into Mission of Our Lady of Mercy, a Roman Catholic orphanage. However, he had a rough time there. He acted out and did not follow the rules laid out for him by the nuns. He was relocated to the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children
1: in Lincoln, Illinois.
0: Can we just talk for a second about how brutal that name is?
1: Yeah, I mean, that... Especially, I mean, that. that's... No child deserves that ever at all. The, like, that's obviously an awful like you can only imagine how horrible the children were treated with a name like that as, as the organization, as as what the organization is called. But it it feels especially like a like a knife in the heart that he was specifically like in this time of like he was he was living in in abject poverty. He, you know, he was orphaned. And you know, in in a time, dur- in a time in history where like education was not its most efficient and it's ne- and widespread uh, in terms of just like schooling and you know, uh, um, among poor people, he was like specifically gifted and like highly advanced. And after all of that, like yeah, like I started school at a third grade level. I you know I applied myself. I'm really advanced. I'm like fucking. Re- I'm reading animorphs and all this shit and then they're just like yeah you're going to go to the school for feeble-minded children like that's that's fucking bleak and just it's just a just a slap in the face this place was later renamed Lincoln State School and then later
0: renamed the Lincoln Developmental Center and
1: then later renamed the Lincoln School for fucking dumbasses
0: and then later
1: renamed fuck them kids the school and then later renamed Just the sound of somebody getting slapped in the face and then a child screaming. And then later renamed a shot of Gary Busey's
0: butt. I mean, honestly, the thing that's surprising to me is that the shot of Gary Busey's butt period was actually not as bad as the sound of someone being slapped and a child screaming period.
1: Oh, yeah, they had they had a great reading program the whole thing was if you read enough animorphs books by thomas edison you got a free ye old pizza hut personal pan
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah henry darger's official diagnosis was quote little henry's heart is not in the right place according to john mcgregor the diagnosis was actually self-abuse which was a euphemism for masturbation which at the time was thought to be directly linked to homosexuality.
1: All right, let's just examine every part of that and just how the 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 Rube Goldberg machine of just fucked up backwards nonsense that that is. <laughs> like the ax, the absolute labyrinth of like fucked up like a, like pretzel logic. Like what what is what does n- heart not in the right place mean? Like, is that because it's like, oh, your heart like because that's like a that's like a f- saying like, oh, your heart was in the right place, which means like you were trying to do the right thing. So what is that? Is, do they mean like his his intentions were not pure or do they mean like his heart was physically in the wrong place? And they're like, yeah, whenever your heart is in your stomach, you're gay and you jerk off a lot. Like, what what does that mean? <laughs> I have no idea. I, and the craziest thing
0: about that, too, is that masturbation was viewed as a direct link to homosexuality, which is just so funny because it's like, bro, you let a dude touch your dick? Well, it yeah. Was, it was me. I I did it. Yeah, but you're a dude. You touch your own dick? I mean, like, y- y- yeah. Like, I mean, so, yeah. Bro, only bitches touch dicks.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's horrible and fucked up. But also, I kind of love it because, like, that that ridiculous line of thinking kind of like came back in the like late 90s early 2000s kind of around the time that we were like in high school in the early 2000s where people would really say stuff like that they would really say like yeah if you, if you jerk off you're gay because you're just like touching your own dick and like and it's like that's such that's such a specific like thing that some dumbass like bro in high school would say like some 16-year-old idiot, and the the idea that there was, like, doctors who were like, well, young man, it looks like you've been touching your own penis, and uh, I've, I hate to break it to you, but um, you're touching a penis, so that means you're gay. Like, like <laughs> that, There was, like, doctors saying that.
0: I, it's so ridiculous. I, it's, it's just amazing. Darger thought that many of his problems from this time period stemmed from the fact that adults were constantly lying to him, causing him to become jaded and something of a smart aleck. This often led to him being punished and alienating himself from his classmates. He also routinely felt compelled to make loud or unusual noises. Some have said he might have suffered from an undiagnosed case of Tourette's syndrome, but most of his biographers disagree. The Lincoln State House was widely known to have used child labor and have rampant issues of abuse. However, in Darger's own writings, he referred to the era he spent there as quote unquote, good times. Is he an unreliable narrator? Yes, as we'll soon see more evidence of. In 1908, Darger discovered that his father had died. This caused him to attempt to escape from the asylum three separate occasions. Once by freight train, once by foot, and then in a final attempt in 1909, he succeeded, finding refuge with his godmother back in Chicago. With her help, he was able to find menial employment at a Catholic hospital as a janitor. The head nun of this hospital was cruel to Darger and would constantly berate him for doing a poor job cleaning the hospital. He eventually moved out of his godmother's house and began working and living full time at the hospital. He kept to himself mostly.
1: He's just like he's like, what? What was that? You're treating me like absolute shit and just like constantly abusing me. Better move in and live here twenty four seven.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's really sad because he he basically during this time period he uh, there are all these reports and also writings that he made where he would basically like role play both. This cruel nun, this headmistress of this, you know, or not headmistress because it's a hospital, but the, the the head nun of this hospital or that was involved in this hospital. who was really cruel to him and he would like act out interactions with her after they had, after she was just like, fuck you, mop better. He would go back to his room and he would like make these like one act plays just for himself. He would like write out the dialogue of what she had said and then what he wished he had said. And then build these like scenes and like act out how to make himself feel better ostensibly.
1: So he took he took that thing that we all do where we have hypothetical arguments in our heads while we're in the shower. And he just took it to the next level. The jerk store called and they're running out of you. (laughs) You you, you There's like we some someone uncovers like they're like we we found a, a hidden cache of of documents from this hospital where Henry Darger had actually written down his plays. And oddly enough, they are all just verbatim episodes of Seinfeld. (laughs) No soup for you. (laughs) No soup for you. (laughs) He just, he, he wrote every episode of Seinfeld and then like somehow uh, Larry David just like discovered them and was just like, He's just stolen all of them <laughs> from Henry
0: Darger. <laughs> During this time period, Henry Darger attended Catholic Mass daily. It was here that he would start the novel and visual project that would consume most of his life. A book entitled The Story of the Vivian Girls in what is known as the realms of the unreal of the Glendeco and Angelinian war storm caused by the Child Slave Rebellion. It was a chronicle of seven sisters, the Vivian Girls, as they wage an unending war in a fictional world against forces of evil.
1: Fuck yeah.
0: So this is like, not only is that title extremely long and hard to say,
1: but fucking awesome. Say no more, fam. Say no more. I don't even need to read the book.
0: I know, you the, the whole title is the book. I don't even need to read the book. Look at that shit. But also I feel like it's so long, I don't actually know that I really do I just like the idea of the thing, I think.
1: <laughs> I mean let's 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 say it again. The story of the Vivian girls in what is known as the realms of the unreal of the Glendeco-Angelinian war storm caused by the slave child rebellion.
0: Bruh, I'm so can you imagine? the Star Wars style opening to the movie adaptation of this book where it's like,
1: <laughs>
0: and then instead of the opening scroll being like, you know, it is a time of great conflict in the galaxy. Blah, 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 blah. blah it's just the story of the Vivian girls. And what is known as the rebel, the realms of the unreal of the Glendeco angelian war storm caused by the child slave rebellion. I'm sold. Same.
1: I'm fucking sold.
0: I want all of Dakota Fanning's as, and Elle Fanning's is just have them like, no, you know what? I, I take that back. Can we get Nick cage as every one of the seven Vivian sisters? It's the,
1: get- se- it's the sequel to, uh, the, the fucking Dan O'Neill movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Can we just, can we just do that?
1: Yes. I just, I just want to put a, a quick pin in here, uh, just for the, for the listening audience. Uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to get more into this, but just, I'm just going to come, I'm just going to put a pin in here and say that this is our mile marker. And you can kind of start to put some things in your head together a little bit. And you can see this this sort of, like, arc, this trajectory. We have this young boy whose mother, uh, he had some, you know, issues with his mother. He didn't have this this mother figure in his early life. And he had this sort of, like, neglectful father. And then he was very quickly, you know, put into an orphanage. And then you can see all these moments where he's developed this kind of like fixation on like matriarchal figures, but almost in like an abusive way where he like seems like he's like, he, he has some kind of like fixation on a kind of like motherly abuse thing. And then he creates this book and it's specifically about women, little girls. There's, there's clearly this trajectory happening here and we'll get more into that. But I just wanted to, I just wanted to, put that out there for anybody listening. Like you can, you can kind of see where this is starting to build into, you know, how this is going to inform this work that he does.
0: The Vivian sisters wage an unending war in a fictional world against the forces of evil. The two fictional countries that are at the centerpiece of Darger's world are Angelinia and Glendolinia. The Angelinians are a Christian nation composed of good, God-fearing people who were virtuous and ready to do battle to protect the innocents. The Glendolinians were evil, worldly, and lustful. They were widely known for enslaving, torturing, and abusing children, the most abhorrent sin imaginable in Darger's view. Darger cast himself as a character within the world of the book. He was a feared general who was attempting to assist the Vivian girls in their quests. In the stories, he's the head of what is known as the Gemini, a group of people who protect boys and girls From the evils of the world, Darger's childhood bully, John Manley, was cast as the head of the Glendolinian forces. So the novel, the story of the Vivian girls in what is known as the realms of the unreal of the Glendeco and Angelinian war storms caused by the Child Slave Rebellion, is one of the longest novels ever written. We haven't gotten to that point yet in the script where we talk about that, but it is. It's like a, it's super, super long. It's super long. And it, it, I think it comprises 12 volumes or eight volumes or something like that and while he was working on it over the course of 30 or 40 years he became interested in art and he started drawing illustrations for the book and drawing the characters in the books and um got some examples of his pieces here um maybe do you want to talk a little bit about the visual style of them the subject matter and um how they relate to the book a little bit
1: (laughs) yeah so um these I mean number one you know it, it it's hard to put into words it's really you know hard to to do these justice by just describing them so I definitely recommend that you go check these out but um you know these 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 illustrations are are I mean first of all they're amazing they're like I said it's it, it's hard to put into words that the st- the style of this but they are they're are beautiful and lush in a way that simultaneously has almost this has almost this uh this like childlike innocence and this childlike um chi- childlike uh what is the word I'm trying to I'm I'm looking for
0: execution maybe Cause yeah yeah
1: execution like they 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 simultaneously feel like a like they're something drawn by a child where it's almost a little bit like Richard McCaslin where they have this this um this amateurish nature like kind of like at the fringes of it where like Perspective is kind of weird, and some of the anatomy is weird, and it, it just kind of, in a way, looks like a child drew it. But then also at the same time, it these look like like a like a classical painting, like they have like the composition and the 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 sort of like you know this looks like stuff that was like painted on the Sistine Chapel, and it, and it it kind of like simultaneously embodies both of those feelings at the same time. It's it's pretty fascinating. It it, it both looks like It's something that could be in an Elizabethan painting by like an old master, but also like it was drawn by like a nine year old.
0: I think the dichotomy there that you're talking about is the fact that, you know, Henry Darger obviously was not formally schooled in any artistic training, but he was really resourceful and was somebody who was naturally really smart, but in kind of like a completely untamed way. So one of the ways that he taught himself how to draw was by tracing. So he would buy children's books and he would buy the newspaper and he would find images in the newspaper and in these children's books and he would trace them over and over and over and over again. And some of them he even took to the early 1900s version of like a copy shop, like a Xerox, but it wasn't a Xerox. It was like a mimeograph or something. And they would cost upwards of like 20 cents her copy and he would make a bunch of copies and he would basically like live on bread all week in order to afford to make these copies so that he could collage things cut things up make these photos of young girls that he had found in the newspaper or in these books larger or smaller depending on what he needed for the various pieces that he was working on So one of the pieces that we have here is um it's a shot from later in the book where Uh, The Vivian girls have been kidnapped by the Glendolinians, and you see all of the little girls being marched in a row with, um, like, hog ties around their necks. They're all strapped together, being marched in a row, and behind them is a a rank-and-file line of men holding swords in military uniforms, like, glaring down at them. Um, And then the next one, then this next image is, like, a bunch of the Vivian girls interacting with these like fairy fey characters who are obviously photos that Henry Darger has cut out of the newspaper, placed behind the piece of paper, then traced their faces, and then drawn their bodies with tails or with horns. Um, And that was kind of a theme that he had where, you know, there would be aspects of the drawings that look really professional and very kind of representational and then aspects of the drawings that are very childlike and naive and amateur because he wasn't trained in any way um and another thing that makes his drawings even weirder is that he never bought any formal art supplies so he would sometimes just get papers from random places and then tape them together so he would be working on these giant in air quotes canvases that are like six feet long, all composed of like eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that have been taped together. And so everything looks like you're talking about with the joke earlier of like him living under a, under a bridge that kind of have this very refined aesthetic that also simultaneously feels like the ramblings of a madman.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's like <clears throat> another, another kind of a thing that popped. Cause I was, I was kind of comparing them to like, to like um uh, fine art, but also something that just popped into my head is like, They also kind of remind me of like Windsor McKay illustrations. But whereas like with Windsor McKay, it's like you look at those those illustrations um, and it's just like meticulously rendered. It's like, oh, my God, the fucking detail in these. It's just it's just mind blowing um, how he's how he's rendered this illustration. And like these are almost like from a like from a little like when you look at them from far away, they look like that. And then really when you get up close is whenever you're just like, oh, yeah, these are like cobbled together collages of just like all this random stuff and yeah you can tell that it's like some of the things are like traced from like real photographs and then there's like bodies drawn onto them that are just like hand drawn and then like there's like some of the backgrounds that look like a like a five-year-old drew them it looks like something that your five-year-old would draw just and then like color with like fucking watercolors and then some of the backgrounds are just like beautiful like the background on this last one, it looks like a little kid drew it like the, the them on this like sort of grassy knoll and there's these like logs or whatever, but then the background in the first drawing, the first illustration with the, with the Vivian girls, like that, that background is just beautiful. It's like, there's like a duck that's like rendered into the clouds. And then there's like an arm that's written, like the clouds have these like shapes and like, it's just this mishmash of like things where you almost are just like, this is like fucking amazing. But then, But then like other things look like they were just like made by a little kid and it's just like this constant like cognitive dissonance of like I I don't know what I'm looking at right now.
0: The Realms of the Unreal would ultimately be over 30,000 pages and total roughly 300 drawings. During this time period in early 1910, Darger became obsessed with drawing and creating work about the Realms of the Unreal, lacking any formal training or real artistic ability. He used photos from newspapers and magazines as underdrawings and traced over them with pencils and charcoal. He then used homemade watercolors to provide the color for his illustrations.
1: I just want to stress that, like, and once again, I suggest you go check these out, but um, just saying that, you know, the description of that, you might almost take it for granted or write it off. I was like, oh, it's just, he just traced a bunch of random shit or whatever. But, like, these these illustrations are very interesting looking. Like, that kind of undersells it to kind of, say it in that way without really seeing them because they the they are greater than the sum of their parts. So let's just say that.
0: He would also use pages from children's books and coloring books and sometimes just openly collage them or trace them into pieces about realms of the unreal one of the most bizarre aspects is that darger was obsessed with young girls however he depicted them with penises the exact reason why darger depicted young women like this has never truly been understood some have said it's a latent homosexuality some have even said that it was due to Darger's belief that only men could be soldiers in battle. During World War I, Darger was drafted and sent into combat. This obviously influenced his work greatly. Upon returning from the war, he gained employment, again as a janitor, and then as a dishwasher, also both at Catholic hospitals. He lived in three apartments while working his menial
1: jobs, having only one friend, William Schloter. Listen, buddy, it's me, William Schloter. Henry, baby, I love you to death. You're a real, you're a real weird guy. The the, the drawings, I don't know about those. Kind of, kind of weird. This book, st- some weird stuff, some real strange stuff. Is all I'll say. But I love you to death. I, I count you among my friends. Real weird stuff, but I'm there for you, man. Whenever whenever you need me, Will, William Schloter, here for you, here for you anytime, buddy. We, old Willie, old Willie Schloty,
0: Willie Schlo They remained friends for 48 years. William also was deeply committed to protecting young children. The two men founded the Children's Protective Society that would pair children in need with adoptive families. Schloeder left Chicago sometime in the mid-1930s, but the two stayed in touch until Schloeder's death in 1959. Biographer Jim Elledge speculated that Darger and Schloeder may have had a romantic relationship. Darger consistently referred to William as his, quote, special friend. However, the more likely story would appear to be that they were both victims of abuse, bonded over their shared trauma, and probably just never spoke about it. The,
1: there's, some, there's some interesting nuanced stuff going on here that I'm kind of observing. Like, on one hand, I think that there is, you know, there, there there's some classic signals of kind of spotting homosexual gay relationships in the past of like some of the terminology that's used in like writings or whatever where you're kind of like reading between the lines of like they're talking about these things but it's not socially acceptable to talk about these things so there's some like there's there's been a history of coded language for gay relationships throughout the decades all the way up until now there's still like coded language for it cuz it's you know you get criticized for it in certain places and certain types of people but what like I'm just I'm listening to all this. I'm just wondering what how much of this is like legit and how, like how much of this is just people like there's also like another side of it where you can be like, is is it just like the these biographers looking back on this guy's clear neurodivergence and just being like, I don't know, he was saying stuff kind of weird. Sounds like he was gay, like. I, like I, I'm kind of like unsure of like what side to follow on this. Like it, it's kind of strange. Like, I, I can't t- I can't tell if there really was like some clear like he was having gay relationships and he was possibly gay or bisexual. And he was just like in that time period. It was just all wrapped up in coded language. And how much of it was just like people kind of looking back on retrospect and just not knowing how to like decipher the sort of unconventional way that he lived his life and just like loading it with speculation that isn't necessarily accurate.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think the only thing that I think is very clear is that he was abused. I think that there's no, I I think that the obsession with innocence and purity, the fact that he always talks about how, the time period in his life where he was at the orphanage was the good years. I mean, that just sounds like Stockholm syndrome to me, and it sounds like something really bad happened to him there, which is why he tried to escape three fucking times. Um, and the other stuff is somewhat nebulous, you know, I think it's it's very shrouded in mystery because of what a because of what an interesting person he was outside of his sexuality, if that makes any sense. Like, there's also, you know, there's there's a documentary that we're going to talk about briefly later, made by his former landlords. And in that documentary, one of them tells a story about him coming home and saying that he was raped and saying this beautiful woman raped me and then took my wallet and like robbed me. And he was very upset about it. Very, very upset about it. And the people he told it to seemed like they didn't know what to do with it because it seemed like he didn't quite understand what the term raped meant. Like, I, I'm i not clear if they're now just in hindsight being like, uh-huh, he was a simpleton and didn't understand what that meant. Or if, it meant something different to him or I, I don't know. It's yeah, just, if, it, it's a very, if it
1: literally meant that she like forcibly had sex with him or if it was just some other thing and he just was using the term completely yeah, wrong.
0: Yeah. It, it, but he also was like a smart person, but also he was a really weird person who was obviously hung up by past trauma. So it's this, it, it's yeah. yeah.
1: That's kind of what I mean. What you just said of like he it, the, the, the thing you just said of like uh, how interesting a person he was outside of his sexuality. That's kind of exactly what I'm trying to say, where it's like, uh, you know, if if he was gay, that that that's fine. I don't that there's obviously nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I'm not trying to, like, rationalize that he wasn't. But it, the the I could go either way on some of these descriptions where it's like, oh, well, he was saying that this guy was a special friend. And so we speculate that that means that they were having like a, a, a gay relationship. And like that could be totally true because that falls in line with some tropes of the way that people use coded language to describe gay relationships, you know, in the past. But also that could have just been because he's a weird neurodivergent guy and he just like he was his special friend. And he like that's not a thing that a, a, a person would normally say, but that he just interpreted the world in a different way. I Like, I don't. That doesn't seem to me to be like that just seems like a lot of speculation. In
0: 1930, Darger settled into the second floor room on Chicago's north side at 851 West Webster Avenue in Lincoln Park. He would live in this room for close to 43 years. Here is where he would write the majority of the realms of the unreal and a nearly 10 year long weather journal and massive amounts of artwork. Darger used clippings in his artwork as we previously discussed, but none was more important to him than the photo of Elise Parabek, a young girl who had been murdered and her photo was run in the newspaper years before. After Darger lost this photo, He had a near mental breakdown. He questioned his faith, blaming God for the photo's removal from his life. His artwork and the story of the realms of the unreal before and after the photo of Elise went missing are drastically different. But that was just the beginning of the darkness in store for Henry Darger. Henry Darger passed away April 13, 1973, in the St. Augustine's home for the aged, the same institution that his father died in.
1: In his final journal entry, a full two years before he passed away, he wrote, January 1st, 1971. I had a very poor Christmas. Never had a good Christmas all my life, nor a good New Year. And now I'm very bitter, but fortunately not revengeful, though I feel should be how I am.
0: Today, he's buried in the All Saints Cemetery in De Plains, Illinois, his gravestone reads Henry Darger, artist, protector of
1: children. Man, they were they were just they didn't give a shit about naming stuff back then. They're just like, yeah, all right, you're gonna go to the the Lincoln School of just little piece of shit kids, and when you get older, you're gonna go to the the Institute for Old Fucking Assholes.
0: Before moving on to what happened to Darger's work posthumously, we must also detail his in air quotes big three works outside of the realms of the unreal crazy house colon further adventures in chicago follows the vivian girls and their secret brother penrod as they find their way to america and then chicago
1: and then become involved in a haunted house mystery oh man i i love that one that's the one with the little baby and he like gets out and he's like crawling up on the construction site and he's like walking along the beam and then there's those those burglar kidnapper guys and they're trying to get him and then they, they get like they get bonked over the head by the beam and then they're like whoa, whoa, whoa and then the baby's like just like oh and he's completely oblivious and then like he makes it through and the guys never get him and then his parents find him and then they just never know that that whole adventure happened to him I love I love that movie yeah I love crazy house further adventures in Chicago as well <laughs>
0: The book is approximately 10,000 pages long and fully handwritten. As previously discussed, Darger became obsessed with the weather at a certain point. He became convinced that he could exert his control over the weather. Thus, he spent more than a decade cataloging it and measuring his effect on it. The History of My Life, an autobiography, was begun in 1968. It spanned eight volumes and yet only 206 pages of it are actually about his early childhood. The remaining 4672 pages devolve into a fiction about a huge twister named Sweetie Pie.
1: I mean, you're going you're going to have to unpack that one a little bit.
0: I, so the the prevailing consensus about History of My Life is that Sweetie Pie was a real twister that he saw as a little kid. He doesn't ever say that in the book, but there was a twister nicknamed Sweetie Pie in like the late 1800s that tore through the Midwest and apparently scarred him. And so the writing a whole book about that, I don't know what that meant to him, but it's fascinating that he started telling a story about his traumatic childhood and like wrote stuff about his dad but his dad wasn't the main concern the main concern was this fucking tornado
1: yeah i mean that's that's that you could almost think that that, that could almost be the act of 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 a truly like a, a a truly unique outsider artist operating on a different plane of logic and reasoning than most people or you could interpret that as like somebody's just like 4672 page like circumnavigation of processing their own trauma like he's like i'm i'm gonna do it i'm finally gonna process this i'm gonna write this all down and i'm gonna deal with my fucking life's worth of trauma and i'm gonna confront the abuse that I- oh nope there's a tornado and it's called sweetie pie and uh it talks and it's it goes on a, a quest to a fucking joseph Campbellian quest to save the like Like that just sounds like somebody just like really going out of their way to not process their own trauma.
0: Yeah, it's also, you know, it's interesting because I feel like his novels and his art share one thing in common, which obviously is what caused them to be so infamous and successful after he passed is that. They both have this complete absence of understanding of what those things are supposed to be, you know. Like it's—he was a devoutly religious person. He was really smart. He—he had, he had, he was hung up on these aspects of his life, whatever they were, and then he kind of got lost in those aspects, both literally and metaphorically. And and it's like he wasn't interested in novels as a recreational thing. He was kind of interested in them as. I don't really get I don't I don't get it. Like I don't get what his interest, I mean, I understand that he felt like he had he was compelled to make these stories about these people, these seven girls. But it's it's not like he they follow a structure of a typical novel. You know you know what I mean? Like a typical novel isn't thirty thousand pages long. So it's this weird thing of like being obsessed with the idea of a thing, not the actual thing.
1: Apparently you, you know, haven't read Spice of Life, The Spandrew Spice Story, My Life in Disarray, uh, Volume 1 through 12. (laughs)
0: Uh, No, I haven't read that one. I've only read the sequel, uh, Spice Up My Life, The Spandrew Spice Sequel Story, Volumes 1 through 13.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's a good one.
0: Just before his life ended, Darger's work was uncovered by Darger's landlord's. His former landlords were the key figures responsible for propelling his legacy forward. Nathan and Kyoko Lerner took his work and were able to bring a large amount of awareness to it, even going so far as to produce a documentary about Darger, which gained great acclaim.
1: After his 81st birthday, Henry Darger died. I try to see how
0: he aged. He would have been an exceptional young person. Nobody was there to see it.
1: Obviously, his personal life was very sad one, very lonely one. But in inner life, I can't imagine anybody had richer life than he had.
0: And I guess it's Henry will always be a mystery. It has been a comfort to me to sit and watch the Vivian Girl princesses, their graceful ways, their beauty and strangeness have helped me to understand the mystery in little girls which all the books about them cannot make clear. Though we may bend over them year after year, and grow old over them, old in age, and old in spirit, they did love me, and I love them.
1: Why, this is very extraordinary.
0: Every picture seems to look you straight in the face as if you had some secret to tell them. Probably he had them to use his company as he was childless. Maybe that is so, and he wanted them all to look as if they were paying attention to him. He must have been a very odd man.
1: He certainly did make a good history of the glanco Abianian War, and an account of everything that you little girls went through.
0: Is that true? He certainly is a wonderful man. We
1: ought to try and find him.
0: If this immense story ever gets published, the whole world will know the history of this awful battle in the main. But its best and fullest details, it will never know. The learners took charge of his estate, publicizing his work and shepherding it into the heights of the art world. Darger's work is looked at as possibly the most important outsider artist of all time. The American Folk Art Museum in New York opened the Henry Darger Study Center in 2001, and his work now commands upwards of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars per piece. You know, I think that the you know there's there's some kind of running themes. On deep cuts, one of them being this kind of idea of outsider artists, kind of people who are obsessed with an idea and they they pursue that idea, even when it doesn't quite make sense to do so um, people who kind of get lost in their own creations, whether that be the creation of self or an artistic creation, and I think that Henry Darger, unfortunately, fits basically all of the themes of our show, like, rolled into one, and it's really sad, because usually, usually these people that we end up talking about, they have one, or two, or maybe even three or four of the aspects, but they don't usually have all of the aspects of the show that we, that you and I are both very, kind of, drawn to, or, you know, uh, kind of obsessed with dissecting, you know, and, usually when somebody has this artificial construction of self, they're able to live a happier life in this other area where they can get away from that, or they have a family, or you know, they have this great success and they enjoy this great success, but it also comes with this price and there's this darker aspect, which is what we usually end up kind of breaking down. But the thing that's so remarkable and genuinely depressing about the situation with Henry Darger is that all of those scenarios dovetailed into the worst possible case for the person at the center like almost no, none of those peripheral benefits that you know usually we usually get to talk about like you know so and so you know they made it to the top of this industry and man they had to fuck up all fuck over all these people to get there and it's so horrible but Well, at least they had a lot of money or whatever. Like none of that happened for him. He was alone, mentally unstable, racked with personal traumas and guilt and pain, had next to no human connections on any deeper level, and also felt unrecognized for the entirety of his life. And that literally is the reason why he was a success after his death which is so bleak, like the fact that people are enjoying his work, it's really beautiful on one level. But when you actually look at it, it's actually really fucking sad. Because people aren't typically actually enjoying the work as the work. They're enjoying how fucked up and sad his life story was, and how miraculous it is that one person Created all of these things in a near pitch black absence of love.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's the it's like the many layered onion of bleakness and all of these different things that we've talked about in in strokes and and blushes across the show. Like you said, um, we've 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 touched on this in shades multiple times, but I specifically remember that during the Kojima episode, this specific idea of Herman Melville. Um, sort of writing, you know, one of the most important epic novels in history, but that it wasn't sort of recognized as that until he was dead. Um, And talking about that idea of like, you know, would you want to like become one of the most revered artists of all time, but you don't experience that until after you die? Or would you rather like experience like a modicum of like mediocre success and just people recognizing that you do cool things but you actually get to experience it and like be alive for it and like have it be a part of your life. And we were talking about the idea and the idea that like, you know, I would I would choose like people just thinking I was kind of cool while I was alive over like dying and then becoming one of the greatest artists of all time it, posthumously any any day of the week. Um, we were, and we, we talked we've talked about that before, but we talked about that a lot on the Kojima episode. Um, the idea of like a life spent seeking meaning um, where you you spend your entire life trying to discover this truth about yourself or about this story or to develop this body of work that answers some kind of universal question, whether it's something that, whether it's a, a, a universal question you're trying to answer for everybody or just something that you're trying to answer for yourself and that the the question is asked, but it's not answered until after you are no longer there to hear it. So you have served as sort of this, your whole life was you're a martyr for asking the question um, and you never get to see the answer. Uh, and this is this is the extreme version of that where, yeah, there's just, it's it's so bleak because it's like not only did he spend his life, you know, in this black hole, uh, this vacuum of of devoid of love or validation um, just on a, at a creative level um, and, you know, potentially a romantic level. Um, But also, you know, clear like like we've touched upon several times in this episode, clearly, uh, you know, somebody with an extreme amount of neurodivergence during a time when that was not understood at all in 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 even the slightest amount to the point where he was kind of weird. So they put him in a place called the school for feeble minded children like this, dude, just at at all quadrants of his uh, of his self was unvalidated by every every force and interaction around him at all times through his entire life. He was he was abused, possibly by his father, uh, by these people at these schools and hospitals that he went to. Um, he he uh, was so devoid of like human interaction that he had this like fundamental misunderstanding of like basic human anatomy. Um, cause he just literally had just never saw, I, I'm assuming just never saw a, a, a woman naked or otherwise. I mean, uh, and, and not, and on top of all of that, he spent all of that time developing this work that, um, as far as he was concerned was, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say a waste of time. I doubt, I don't think he thought of it that way, but it, it this is such a this is such a weird connection, but this is what it makes me think of one of the one of the things that really got to me in just this weird way. It's weird, the little things that will hit you like you really think that certain things there, there's like these really conventional ideas of what's going to like be tragic to you and the things that are going to hit you and make you emotional. And then it's really weird that the strangest things will hit you. But one of the things that really just kind of hit me like a like a like a truck um, was that um, growing up, uh, among many other things, one of the one of the things that my brother and I, um, one of the main things that we bonded over. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of different things, you know, anime, video games, music. Uh, and, but, you know, in our early childhood, we 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 played video games together. And some of my earliest memories were that I would play uh, I would sit there before he was like really old enough to play games himself. I would play these like single player Japanese RPGs, like final fantasy seven, uh chrono trigger, um, legend of Dragoon, all these different like classic RPGs. And I would just sit there and play them. And he would just watch me. And like, we would just like, ex- we would just play them together. And so like those games are obviously like a big part of our childhood. And, um, they, They've been talking about doing it for like so long that it became a, a joke at some point. But like I feel like in the in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, they announced that they were going to do a remake of Final Fantasy 7, which is like one of the most popular games in the franchise, if not the most popular. Um, and they put out this big tech demo. They recreated the opening cutscene ske- cut in what was at that time modern graphics. It was PS3 graphics. And then it just like never came out for years and years. And then they finally announced it and they finally came out with it and they put out they, they came out with the, the Final Fantasy seven remake. Um, but they decided that what they basically did, did was they they like hobbitized it where they took one game and they decided to like expand it out into multiple games. So the first part of the Final Fantasy seven remake came out several I feel like at the at this point it was like a year ago, or maybe over a year ago. It was like maybe it was in twenty twenty, um, and they came out with it, and it was it came out on the PS four, and um, it's it's only like the first like it's it's like the first like eighth of the game. They they expanded it out and like put a bunch of stuff in it so they could tell this story across like multiple games and. This game came out and it was, you know, something that we it was something we talked about for years. And we were always like, when's that going to come out? When's that going to come out? And we talked about it all the time and it finally came out. And um uh, I didn't even play it because I don't I don't have a PS4 or or any other console other than a switch. Um, But my brother, he got it and he 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 was like, I, I remember he was just like, yeah, I'm just going to. I'm just going to, like, get get a couple days off of work and I'm just going to fucking sit here and play this game all the way through and just not leave my room until I've beat it. Um, and he did that. And um, the thing that the thing that one of the little things that just hit me out of nowhere was this idea that, like, he's never he was never going to be able to play the rest of the games. Like, that's just such a weird thing. Like, that's not a thing you would ever think of as like would be of like this significant thing that would kind of like affect you emotionally but I just thought about that. And I just, uh, for some reason that just really hit me of this idea that like he just, he, he just will, n- he never got to play the rest of the games. And um, I, the idea that you would spend your whole life putting together this body of work that, you know, a lot of other people that we talk about, you know, they have these obsessions over something they have. They obsess over telling a story or creating something or executing a vision or whatever. and, that this is all of that but it's also like his body of work was like his attempt at like trying to experience love through his own imagination like he was he was he was trying to create a world in which he could be loved and i think you know in a way you could think that like okay so i'm going to create a world in which i can experience love and then if other people can if i can invite other people into this world and they can experience it it's almost like the conduit. It's the it's the place where we can come together and both I can be loved through this sort of like buffer zone. Like I can't I, I don't know how to do that on a one to one basis. I can't connect with somebody. But if I create this world that where I am loved and then invite somebody into this world and they experience that through this middle through this middle ground, I can I can experience that um, uh, by the transitive property. And the idea that he spent his whole life putting that together and then just never, there are all these people that are like sort of po- retroactively um, sort of connecting with him through his work. Um, and there's a lot of ethical and moral, moral questions about that that we've talked about a lot with like outsider art and the idea of people like experiencing outsider art and sort of like, it's almost like exploitative in a way where you're just like, Oh, like it's just this person's life was so tragic and that makes the art so interesting. And I just, you know, that, that there's, there's, weird grayness around that. But, you know, aside from that, you can say like, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's what people do that like people are doing exactly what he um, intended with that work. They are, they are experiencing a relationship with him through the world that he created. But, and that's, that's, that's the answer to the question. The question is, can I be loved? And the answer is yes, you absolutely can. people, have discovered your work and they love it and they they do podcast episodes about you and they admire the things that you did and you you know people have made documentaries about you and they have um you know they've they they put your work into museums and there's people who have like serious highfalutin discussions about your work and they they dissected and all these things like the, the the answer to that question was yes but he never got to see that answer and it's it's the most sad in this case, because the question was, can I be loved, which is not usually what the what the question is, Um, at least not so explicitly. I think it's always an aspect of it. But in this case, like it was the central question,
0: which inherently just negates the the answer of yes, if you're dead.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it then it becomes academic. It's like, yes, in theory, you can be loved, but it didn't happen. <laughs> it just did not. It didn't actually happen which is which yeah like you like you said at the beginning it's just so sad so ridiculously sad i'm dave baker and i'm Spandrew spice you can find me on the internet at
0: heydavebaker.com or uh on all the socials at xdavebakerx Spandrew, where can people find you on the internet
1: you can find me traveling through a mythical world fighting against a, a an evil empire of cruel men who seek to abuse the children of the, of our planet. And I will be there protecting them and fighting alongside of them. Um, and also like making weird BDSM plays about my nun boss. Um, and also you can't find me on social media because I abstain from social media. But if you want to pay homage to our dear old Papa Pricey, you can check him out, go to his website, DAPriceWrites.com, where you can get his book, uh, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. Um, you can also follow Deep Cuts on social media. You can go to Facebook and search Deep Cuts Podcast. You can join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast fa- Facebook group, where we talk about the show and other cool stuff, uh, make memes and all that. Uh, you can also join our Discord server. Uh, just type in bit.ly.com slash Discord. And you can join the server there, and it's another community where we talk about the show and other cool things and movies and TV and all kinds of different random stuff. Uh, You can follow us on Instagram, at DeepCutsPod. You can follow us on TikTok, at Mystery Treehouse. You can uh, get some DeepCuts merch by going to DeepCutsPod and clicking on the shop or just typing in bit.ly.com slash DeepCutsMerch where you can get T-shirts and fanny packs and baby onesies with uh, some cool designs on them.